welcome to the show. You have dialed in to Renegade Files, your portal for exploring the paranormal, the unsolved, and the conspiratorial. I'm your guide, Lex Gordon, sending you this unauthorized transmission direct from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 47, The Smithsonian Cover-Ups. The Smithsonian Institution, often just called the Smithsonian for short, is a group of museums, education, and research centers and is the largest such organization in the world. It was created by the U.S. government on 10 August 1846 for, quote, the increase and diffusion of knowledge. The Smithsonian is named after its founding donor, British scientist James Smithson. The Smithsonian houses 154 million items in 19 museums, 21 libraries, nine research centers, and a zoo, with its facilities mostly located in Washington, D.C. This makes the Smithsonian custodian of the world's largest storehouse of historical artifacts, scientific discoveries, artistic achievement, technological milestones, and natural history. In short, the accomplishments and understanding of our world and humanity's place within it is in a large part, what the combined knowledge of the Smithsonian Institution tells us it is. But as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. Being the caretaker of Western civilization's understanding of the entire world puts the Smithsonian in a unique position when it comes to exactly what and how they display what they put on public view and what things they choose not to display. In this episode, we will explore the conspicuous absence of some valuable discoveries which have been allegedly collected but never displayed by the Smithsonian. And we will dive deep into the reasons that these hidden treasures have many informed people crying foul. So let's explore the explorers, turn over the archives, pick the lock to the restricted section, and gain access to the castle's private elevator. Press the R button for rabbit hole and descend into the darkened corridors of the Smithsonian cover-ups. Part one, the Great American Museum. First, here's a quick thank you to The Y Files Operation Podcast for their work on this subject. A good amount of what I found here comes from the Y-Files episodes, so thanks and check out that monster project if you haven't yet. The Y-Files video channels and the Y-Files operation podcast on audio platforms. Good stuff. Like many Americans, I visited the Smithsonian Museums when I was a kid with my parents on a vacation to Washington, D.C., and it was really cool. I got to see the Hope Diamond, bunch of neat things. I was disappointed though because the dinosaur exhibits in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History were closed at the time, but we did see tons of other neat things. 
I think the hardest I've ever laughed was at some of the titles and unapproachable scribble and splatters of the abstract expressionist paintings in the Smithsonian American Art Museum's modern and contemporary art collection. I was only about 11 years old at the time, and while I've come to appreciate the hypnotic depth and originality of someone like Jackson Pollock, he's one of my favorites as a matter of fact, but at that young age, I just wasn't ready for it, and falling on the floor laughing in tears under a priceless painting of red and yellow splatter called a glass of water just wasn't a good look for my parents, so they pulled me out of there laughing the entire way, and we went to the National Air and Space Museum instead. The things I saw and learned on that trip, and the many things I've discovered through the Smithsonian since, have enriched and enlightened my life. The Smithsonian has made incalculable contributions to society, and that fact is not in question. I have complete faith that the Smithsonian Institution has done massive amounts of good. What we will explore are questions about things that they aren't telling us and why that may be. Now, if you're like me and you think something sounds off when I call this collection of museums the Smithsonian Institution, because as far as you thought the organization was actually called the Smithsonian Institute, then you have just experienced the Mandela Effect, and believe me, that's an entire episode of its own, so watch for that. But yes, the official name is, and according to all things official always has been, the Smithsonian Institution, which not only doesn't sound right, but doesn't make literal sense, but that's the world of the Mandela Effect, and yes, it bothers me deeply, but it doesn't seem like I can do much about it, and like I said, whenever I can muster the emotional strength, we'll dive into that topic. I only mention it now, because if you grew up knowing it as the Smithsonian Institute, I don't want you to think I'm incompetent. So Google it yourself and see that it's now called the Smithsonian Institution. And because of this unexplained mess from here on out, I'll just refer to it as the Smithsonian for the most part. And if in the future it changes across the world of information to the Jeffersonian or the Washingtonian, then I guess the title of this podcast and everything I've said in it will probably change too. And that timeline may just delete this paragraph and no one will ever know. And those of us who remember can think we're going crazy again, swear that we read the Berenstein Bears and wonder what will switch next. I digress. So what important discoveries were covered up by the Smithsonian and why? Part 2. The Grand Canyon. In 1882, Senator Benjamin Harrison, who would go on to become president, began working to have the Grand Canyon designated as a national park. He did so in order to protect the stunning terrain and unique ecosystem for future generations, and to protect it from mining and logging and any other destruction of habitat that may befall such a fantastic section of land. It took the presidencies of Harrison, Roosevelt, and Wilson, creating a succession of woodland preserves, national monuments, and proclamations to finally and fully designate the Grand Canyon as a bona fide national park in 1919. But back in 1908, 
Theodore Roosevelt was still picking up where Harrison had left off, and he was a vocal proponent of protecting the canyon in an official way, closing it to not only loggers and miners, but other travel and enterprise as well. Thinking that he may be one of the last independent explorers to have the chance to explore the area freely, adventurer G.E. Kincaid took a boat trip down the Colorado River and through the Grand Canyon in 1908, allegedly. The canyon was rich in precious metals like gold and silver, and Kincaid planned to collect what he could before the canyon was closed to those types of searches. At one point, Kincaid noticed a section of cliff wall with a drastic color variation in the sediment, and he thought that such a feature may indicate the presence of valuable veins of gold or copper, so he left his boat to try to hike up to that area. He was never able to find a trail, but at one curve in the tumbled gravel wash, he pulled back some overgrown brush and discovered a most unexpected sight. Stairs. The stairs were carved into the natural sandstone and they led upwards and around for hundreds of steps. They led up to a high shelf on the canyon wall, and at the back of the shelf, there was a cavern entrance that looked to have been carved out by hand, not just a natural cave opening. Kincaid entered the cave, and in the glow of his torch, he saw that the walls were covered in what was unmistakably Egyptian-style hieroglyphics. He continued into the tunnel to find a complex of side tunnels and connected rooms, some as large as 30 or 40 feet square. Doorways into these rooms were oval, and each room was ventilated with air shafts connecting to the main tunnel or leading to the flat ground high above. He writes in his journal, quote, The passages are chiseled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by an engineer. The ceilings of many of the rooms converge to a center. The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but toward the rear, they gradually reach a right angle in direction. End quote. So these passages sort of fan out as you proceed down the main hall. This was an enormous underground city, which Kincaid estimated could have housed a population of 50,000. He found storage rooms with clay vases filled with grain. He found large cooking areas and a huge dining hall. Many rooms were filled with ancient artifacts. He picked up a few of these items for later study. He found evidence of a foundry and the melting and hardening of metals such as copper. He found hardened metal tools, charcoal, and beads of copper slag the result of forging the material at high temperatures. He explored the system of rooms and halls for hours. When he discovered the largest room he had come to yet, he was shocked to see that it was a crypt. Row after row and shelf after shelf held what Kincaid described as mummies standing upright, the embalmed and wrapped remains of generations extending around the walls of the vertical oval room as high as his torch beams could reach. It was at this time that he knew if he was to properly explore this entire discovery, he was going to need help. 
he would need a team of explorers and scholars. He prepared a package containing a few of the artifacts he had found, his detailed notes, and a letter requesting logistical and financial assistance for further exploration, and he sent it off to the Smithsonian. He described this underground city as one of the most significant archaeological discoveries ever made. It seems the Smithsonian agreed. According to the article that gives us this information, they sent Professor S.A. Jordan, supported by a team of 40 archaeologists, researchers, and support staff to investigate, survey, and explore the cavern city. They discovered that the cave system had been designed in a systematic geometrical design with all passages leading to an immense central chamber, which housed a towering statue of what Kincaid said reminded him of a seated Buddha. With more time and added light, Kincaid was able to elaborate on his descriptions of the previously mentioned crypt. Directly from his journal, we read, The walls slant back at an angle of about 35 degrees. On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. At the head of each is a small bench on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay and all are wrapped in a bark fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude while as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing a later stage of civilization. It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have proved to be male. No children or females are buried here. This leads to the belief that this exterior section was the warrior's barracks. Kincaid and the Smithsonian team concluded that this was a fully populated underground city with an army and a citizenry of tens of thousands of people who lived here for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. They found thousands of artifacts like swords, shields, metal tools, and armor made of copper, bronze, and one metal that could not be identified. They found hundreds of vases and cookware and copper bowls, cups, utensils. And they found large stone tablets engraved with hieroglyphics. Here's another passage from Kincaid's journal. On all the urns or walls over doorways and tablets of stone which were found are the mysterious hieroglyphics, the key to which the Smithsonian Institute hopes yet to discover. The engraving on the tablets probably has something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have been found in southern Arizona. Among the pictorial writings, only two animals are found. One is of a prehistoric type. Notice that when he wrote that, Kincaid was living in the timeline of the Smithsonian Institute by his own writing. And it is very unlikely that such an educated man who had written to this organization, received funding, and been given a professor and a team of 40 scientists would spell incorrectly the very name of the organization supporting him. Moving on. 
Despite their best efforts, something wasn't adding up. The hieroglyphics looked kind of Egyptian, but the dynastic Egyptologists from the Smithsonian said they weren't quite right. The statues looked almost Tibetan, but the anthropologists said that they were slightly off from what they would expect with that style, or from that time, and the pottery and metalworking was far more technologically advanced than anything done by the peoples known to have lived in that area from the previous several thousand years. The team sent boxes and crates of cataloged artifacts back to the Smithsonian, along with pages of notes and summaries of the findings, and the overall team conclusion was that whatever this civilization was, it was comprised of an advanced people who had traveled to the area and arrived there to create this complex society thousands of years before the people they knew as Native Americans had even arrived on the continent. This was a people who were spiritually complex, technologically proficient, and had an understanding of the applications of divisions of labor, had the ability to work with bronze thousands of years before the Bronze Age, and knew enough about agriculture to not only support a population of 50,000 or more, but to feed and house a standing army. And by all accounts of mainstream archaeology and anthropology, such a civilization should not and could not have existed in this location at that time. Along with their treasure trove of artifacts, notes, drawings, and hypotheses sent to the Smithsonian by Professor S.A. Jordan and explorer G.E. Kincaid, the two also sent a request for continued funding and additional manpower so they could explore this find further and search the surrounding areas for more evidence of this ancient advanced civilization. The request was denied and both Jordan and Kincaid vanished and were never heard from again. One of the final entries we have from Kincaid's notes is a paragraph discouraging anyone from trying to visit the location of the find. In this note, he says that the entrance is about 1,500 feet down the sheer face of a cliff, that it's located on government land and making your way to it would result in trespassing charges, and that the scientists wish to work unmolested and would quickly refuse entry to any outsider who arrived, so a trip to explore the cave on your own would be pointless. This is the first of a few red flags surrounding this case, and it's been used by skeptics to point toward this all being a hoax. The logic being that Kincaid was making it all up, or worse, the newspaper writers spreading the stories were making Kincaid up. People would naturally expect to see photos and displayed artifacts from such an archaeological discovery. After all, stories of amazing treasure, gold statues, and jeweled-covered artifacts from places like ancient Egypt were all the rage at the turn of the century, and newspaper photos and traveling exhibits drew the curious seekers of the day, even though it would be 14 more years before Howard Carter would discover King Tut's tomb. But this idea that no one could get there, and it was all private government stuff anyway, may have been a way to preemptively stop the questions of, hey man, where's all the treasure? 
Another possibility is that the explorer Kincaid and the Professor Jordan used pseudonyms when they went to the papers with their stories. The two had worked with the Smithsonian who had provided them with money and manpower and collected many of the first artifacts from these caverns. Then, when the two asked for additional help, they were refused and the entire area was declared off-limits by the federal government. It's quite possible that a respected professor and a successful explorer wanted to get this story out, but were cautious about it, or downright afraid of retaliation from the Smithsonian or the G-Men, so they used false names when publishing their findings. This would account for why there seems to be no other evidence or history of these two men, apart from what we read in the articles describing this specific discovery. But further fuel for skeptics lies in the fact that the Smithsonian emphatically denies the existence of Kincaid's cave, Kincaid himself, and for that matter, Professor Jordan. It seems like the only way someone could prove that these stories are true would be to find the cave. Part 3. Modern Attempts Jerry and Kathy Wills have studied the story of Kincaid's cave extensively, and they have become something of an alternative archaeological power couple among the Fortean fans of forbidden knowledge. Their approach to finding the cave was to try to first locate Kincaid and Jordan's base camp. They were, after all, there for quite a while, and by doing so, they could track their way to the cave itself. The two did research for years, and they also undertook field excursions to map and traverse miles of canyon walls and river shores in the area Kincaid had described. Finally, they found a location covered in items from the time period of the Kincaid explorations. Canteens, lanterns, fragments of leather straps, old pots, tools, they believed this spot to be the main base camp of the second expedition, the one Kincaid had mounted with the help of the Smithsonian, where he was joined by Professor Jordan and the 40 assistants. The Wills believed that the entrance to the cave was below this encampment, a thousand feet or so below on the sheer cliff wall. But in their exploration, they made another discovery the entire area surrounding what they think is the cave entrance has truly been designated a no trespassing and off-limits zone by the federal government, aka the man. This adds quite a bit of credibility to the idea that Kincaid and Jordan may have used false names in their public reports because they knew they were dealing with a cover-up. And here's where things take a dark turn. Luckily, here at Renegade Files, we are not afraid of the dark. About a thousand caves have been discovered in the Grand Canyon. Many of these are recognized as man-made, but out of all of them, only 30 have been mapped, and many of those have been closed to the public and permanently sealed. The reason? For your own safety. Some of these man-made caverns have been sealed off with imposing steel gates embedded into the living rock which make the cave entrances look like doorways to some medieval prison. 
When asked why these gates have been installed, the National Park System tells us they are there to protect the cave's populations of bats. Oh, of course, because how could bats ever survive without steel bars over their cave entrances? And maybe the idea is that they're sealed with bars so the bats can get in and out, rather than just being filled in with rocks or concrete. But it's simply a way to dodge the question of why are the caves even closed to the public in the first place? The argument that the caves are too dangerous is ridiculous. People go whitewater kayaking through the Grand Canyon and the rivers around it. People skydive over it by jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. You can rock climb there and hike through rattlesnake territory and do all manner of dangerous things, but no one can go into any of these admittedly man-made caves. Why not? Is it because the cave walls are carved and painted with hieroglyphics that would destroy the current timeline status quo? Maybe. On one trip to try to reach the cave from below, the Wills team was scared away by a low-flying plane that circled their party and flew well below the canyon rims. This was in a spot known to be a no-fly zone and aircraft of any type are forbidden to fly below the Grand Canyon Rim. Yet, this unmarked plane, with no visible ID numbers, did just that. They actually have video of this plane doing this, which seems to prove that they were being watched. Another group mounted a field expedition to try to locate the cave from below, just like Kincaid had done and the Wills group had attempted. As they approached the general area where they believed the cave to be, they were startled to hear the telltale throb of a chopper echoing between the canyon walls. They looked up to see a black helicopter above them. It was not a tourist sightseeing helicopter or even a private job, but an unmarked Boeing AH-64 Apache attack helicopter. The Apache swung around to face them, and they stared down the barrel of the most menacing 30mm M230 chain gun where it hung between the chopper's forward landing gear. These explorers hastily departed, and the Apache lifted and flew away. Convinced by the encounter that they were on to something, this crew later returned to head topside and see if they could find the ventilation shafts described by Kincaid. These would have been open shafts in the ground along the clifftop edges above where they thought the Kincaid cave entrance was. If they could find the ventilation shafts, then they would know they were above the cave, then they could return and maybe rappel down from that spot. They knew that getting to the cave entrance from above would be sketchy and would require not only climbing gear and skill, but also an established starting point above the cavern with anchors for climbing ropes and a spot for support and materials from where a team could embark. While searching for the ventilation shafts, they discovered several installed concrete slabs at the cliff edge and heavy steel U-shaped bars that had been sunk deep into the rock or embedded into sunken concrete pillars. 
These were obviously implements that had been installed to mount a descending expedition down the canyon wall, presumably to access the cave below, just like they were planning to do. When they asked the authorities about the slabs and steel anchors, they were told that these had been installed to prevent rockfall and erosion, but that didn't make any sense. For miles in either direction, the cliff faces and plateau tops are virtually identical, yet only in this one spot were such concrete slabs and steel anchors present. This team was also informed that the area was off limits and any return visits would result in trespassing violations. Adding to cover-up theories is the fact that in this area, the rock formations and structures have very interesting names. Naming landmarks and oddities in the Grand Canyon and other national parks is a long and colorful tradition. Names such as Watchtower, Bright Angel Point, Devil's Tower, and Navajo Bridge, for example. But in the area surrounding the suspected location of Kincaid's Cave, within which he claimed to have found hieroglyphics and statues of ancient gods, we find a strange trend in the names given to the unique rock formations and notable Grand Canyon locations. Names like Horus, Tower of Set, Isis Temple, Cheops Pyramid, the Manu Temple, Ra, the Buddha Temple, Shiva, and Krishna Temple. All of these locations are within areas of the Grand Canyon that are prohibited to travel. You are not allowed to go there. And the discoveries of Egyptian-type artifacts claimed by Kincaid and others are not the only things the Smithsonian is accused of hiding. Part 4. Cover-Up Culture In 1881, geologist John Wesley Powell was kind of a big deal at the Smithsonian. He appointed Cyrus Thomas to be the director of the Eastern Mound Division of the Museum's Bureau of Ethnology. From study he had done before arriving at the Smithsonian, Cyrus Thomas believed there had been an advanced race of mound builders in North America who had existed there long before the Native American Indians, or who we would call the Native American Indians, or who they would at the time. This would mean that this advanced people would have migrated there from another continent and brought advanced techniques with them. This school of thought is known as diffusionism, and it came into direct conflict with the Smithsonian's long-established belief in what is known as isolationism, which thinks of civilizations as evolving alone, without influence from other cultures, particularly when those groups are geographically distanced, so like Europe and South America being separated by the Atlantic. Let's look into some of the ways that the ideas of diffusionism could cause trouble for the authority of the Smithsonian, and what has been their response when confronted with evidence for a previously undiscovered, advanced North American civilization 
predating what the mainstream Smithsonian ideals consider the native first peoples. Excavation into ancient mounds of the American Midwest reveal complex cultures with advanced systems and cities larger than those in Europe at the time. Some of these mounds contain burial chambers where skeletons of giant humans have been found. To go on a deep exploration into the large humanoid mystery races, check out Renegade Files Episode 20, The Forbidden History of Giants. The Spiro Mounds of Oklahoma were excavated in the 1930s. Among the artifacts, archaeologists found skeletons that were seven and eight feet tall. This is not a conspiracy theory. It was reported in many newspapers of the day. The Spiru settlement was extensive. It was the hub of trade for the Spiro people who led Mississippian culture over nearly two-thirds of what is now the United States. Spiro was the westernmost outpost of the Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, also known as the Southern Death Cult or the Buzzard Cult which extended from Cahokia to Georgia. The societies shared elaborate rituals, a pictographic writing system, and created mounds built from earth around central plazas. Evidence of vast trading areas converging at the Spiro Mounds can be found in some of the widespread origins of artifacts discovered there, including copper from the Great Lakes, shell beads from the shores of California, and conch shells from the Gulf of Mexico. A permanent settlement at Spiro lasted from at least the year 800 and possibly much earlier until 1450, when the population suddenly declined and dispersed. So in the Spiro mounds, as well as other sites around the entire country, skeletons of giants were absolutely found. Many of these skulls also had double and sometimes triple rows of teeth. There are pictures of some of these skulls and to see them is shocking. There are also some pictures of the seven and eight foot tall skeletons. So where are these artifacts? Well, in the early 1900s, the government in conjunction with large philanthropic organizations basically took over American archeology. span As they did, this establishment undertook the policy of flatly denying the existence of any and all anomalous remains. The main reason is that such findings contradicted their position that no Europeans had ever set foot in North America before Columbus, so in what's called the pre-Columbian era, all of the native people had evolved here and they were inferior to the conquering Europeans in every way. That was the official story, and not my opinion, just so we're clear. Even as early as 1851, there was a strong revisionist history tendency in the National Museum, which would then become the Smithsonian. E.G. Squire was working to debunk theories of pre-Columbian contact, and several decades later, Gerald Folk would attempt to discredit 
and jettison the work of virtually every researcher into the field up to his day, including the skeletal measurements of his fellow agents in the Bureau of Ethnology. Then, the denial of what are called unique physical types, or UPTs, reached its peak with the efforts of Alice Hardlicka. As the curator of anthropology at the Smithsonian, and this started in 1903, Hardlicka made it his personal mission to discredit the ideas that any anomalous skeletons were ever even found. He wrote and published papers denying the existence of any seven or eight foot humanoid remains, and he made public speaking appearances to proclaim the same, even though there were multiple examples of such uncovered giants in official documents within the annual reports made to the Board of Regents of the Smithsonian. Hydrolica, not sure if that's how you pronounce it. His name is spelled H-R-D-L-I-C-K-A, so Hydrolica, said any reports of giant skeletons were nothing more than exaggerations, even though there were photos and samples to prove otherwise, not to mention the documentation of other Smithsonian archaeologists. Smithsonian scientists officially identified at least 17 skeletons that stood well over 7 feet tall in their annual reports, including one example that was 8 feet tall and a skull with a 36-inch circumference reported from Anna, Illinois in the Smithsonian Annual Report of 1873. The average human skull is 20 inches in circumference. This one was 36 inches. The Smithsonian is mentioned dozens more times as the recipient of enormous skeletons from across the entire United States. These giant skeletons, many of which were briefly on display at the Smithsonian, have vanished. We do know that some of them were repatriated by NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, which is a worthy action whereby previously unearthed Native American remains are returned to their sacred locations and reburied to protect them from further study. There are many, like 18 giant skeletons from Wisconsin, a bunch in Illinois, and one site with 10-foot stone coffins holding giant bones, all discovered, documented, reported to or delivered to the Smithsonian, then gone. Within a few short years, documents were destroyed or altered, specimens vanished, and genuine photos were discredited as hoaxes. And just to be clear, this is not all conspiratorial speculation. Here's a quote from Native American Vine Deloria, author and professor of law. Quote, modern-day archaeology and anthropology have nearly sealed the door on our imaginations, broadly interpreting the North American past as devoid of anything unusual in the way of great cultures characterized by a people of unusual demeanor. The great interloper of ancient burial grounds, the 19th century Smithsonian, created a one-way portal through which uncounted bones have been spirited. This door and the contents of its vault are virtually sealed off to anyone 
but government officials. Among these bones may lay answers not even sought by these officials concerning the deep past. End quote. One famous photograph shows what is called the San Diego Giant, a mummified human of over eight feet tall in an upright coffin between two men of the day in 1895. The Smithsonian inspected these remains, then paid the equivalent of $15,000 for the mummy. When people began asking to see it, the Smithsonian said they had determined the mummy to be made of gelatin and that it was a hoax. If that's true, then why pay so much money to get it, especially after Smithsonian scientists had inspected it before they bought it? The men who sold it to them would have surely been prosecuted for defrauding the largest museum in the world. But no, the mummy just vanished. And the Smithsonian said it was a hoax, along with dozens of others just like it. My summary. Anytime you have a bureaucracy, you have inefficiency and this becomes compounded with centralization. The Smithsonian has established itself as the central state authority on our history, our natural world, and our human accomplishments. In many ways, the Smithsonian has done and continues to do a stellar job of collecting, displaying, and sharing this knowledge. Any American citizen can visit any Smithsonian museum for free. The Smithsonian Institute has more items that you can't see in their collections than you can, and they have 150-something million items on display. Now, admittedly, most of the time this comes down to simple logistics and practical uses of space. As an example, there are about 17,500 species of butterflies in the world. Some variations between species amount to very subtle differences in taxonomy, and it would be impractical to display every single one, much less the hundreds of examples they have for each species. So if you consider how many dead butterflies the Smithsonian has under glass somewhere, then compare that number to how many are on display, then yes, they have far more butterflies that you can't see when you compare that to how many you can. But this isn't about one monarch butterfly some guy found that had a blue spot on its wing. The question here is, are they hiding important archeological discoveries that would change the way we view Native American culture and human evolution? It's just my opinion after digging through all of this, but here's a bit of MC Lex Gordon freestyle on the subject. The Smithsonian started in 1846. To put how long ago this was into perspective, Julian Scott, who won a Medal of Honor in the Civil War, was born that year. The discovery of gold in California, which caused the gold rush, was two years away. Queen Victoria ruled England, and Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone, wouldn't be born for another year. And that's when they started the Smithsonian. So in 1846, 
when the Smithsonian began writing the story of history, telling the world that there had been Native American civilizations of highly advanced trade, spiritualism, agriculture, and construction, which had resulted in large complexes and interconnected cities that were larger than any in Europe and that thrived thousands of years before any European set foot in North America, well, that just wasn't going to fly. According to the official narratives of the day, the Native Americans were primitive, barely surviving, and had come from even worse off ancestors, and they were lucky to have the blue-eyed European saviors sweep in and teach them about the Bible they had written and tie their land with fences and mock their understanding of the world. That was the attitude, and that's the attitude that hides away anything that conflicts with that story. The Native Americans evolved in an isolated state. The Europeans brought to them the ideas of community, trade, and farming. The only people who lived in the Grand Canyon were nomads passing through. The Serpent Mound was just a decoration. All of this most probably not true. The stories of Kincaid's Grand Canyon Cave, where the explorer found an extensive underground city with hieroglyphics and thousands of artifacts, is said to have been a hoax created by one or two newspaper reporters, but the entire area where the cave was said to be is off-limits, and people trying to go there have been chased away by black helicopters and unmarked planes. Then, the National Park System names all of the spots around that location after ancient Egyptian pharaohs and landmarks. It's just weird. Multiple giant skeletons have been found in almost every state in the nation, yet not a single one can be seen at the Smithsonian. They say that some of these quickly disintegrate when unearthed, but we have other ancient skeletons. We have dinosaur bones even. And what about the 10-foot stone coffins? Gone. There's also the story of the Kennewick Man, called the most important human skeleton ever found in North America by Douglas Preston, writing for the Smithsonian Magazine. I won't go into the very convoluted details here, but I will put a link to that article in the show notes so you can dive into it if you want to. But the gist of it is that this prehistoric skeleton was found in the Kennewick, Washington area. Scientists from the Smithsonian began to study it and determined the skeleton to be up to 9,000 years old. When the Army Corps of Engineers learned of the radiocarbon date, they immediately claimed authority over the remains, declared that they would now make all decisions concerning the handling of and access to the skeleton, and demanded that all scientific studies cease. And this is an article in Smithsonian Magazine. At the same time, the county coroner where the remains were discovered believed that he had legal jurisdiction in the case. The dispute escalated, and the bones were sealed in an evidence locker at the local sheriff's office pending a resolution. Then, a group of Columbian River Basin Indian tribes and bands claimed the skeleton belonged to them and petitioned its return under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that we spoke of earlier. Eventually, a court ruled that since the skeleton was so old that it predated the Columbian River Basin Indian tribes, so they had no claim to it, 
and you can see how complicated something like this can get. There's not supposed to be a skeleton that predates those tribes in that area. So the tribes are like, well, give it back to us. And then the government is like, well, but it is actually kind of old, so you can't have it. The importance of this skeleton lies in the fact that its age could completely rewrite the history of how North America was originally populated and when. In short, it casts the possibility that people from as far away as Japan could have ended up here tens of thousands of years before the official timeline of that land bridge migration that's been given to us for generations. During that trial over the rights to those bones, the presiding magistrate judge, John Jeldirks, noted that the Army Corps of Engineers had, on multiple occasions, misled or deceived the court. In the end, the debacle cost the taxpayers about $5 million. The skeleton is now in private storage in the Burke Museum of Natural History in Seattle, and it continues to be fought over. Again, you can read that full story through the Kennewick Man Skeleton article, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. So these kind of things have been going on for years, and are still going on to this day. Someone finds something controversial, and the powers that be go to work fighting over who gets to study it, and who gets to see it, and what they're going to tell us about it. Like it or not, as free as the USA is, we still have gatekeepers of knowledge, and for as much good as the Smithsonian has done, there is no doubt that there are endless mysteries and hidden artifacts behind their ivy-covered walls that we may never be allowed to see. Thank you so much for investigating the Smithsonian cover-ups with me. Subscribe or follow the show now so we can always dive deep to explore the crazy forbidden stories where logic and common sense clash with the official narrative. I am really glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. If you're enjoying listening to the Renegade Files, know that they're always free for you to hear on any podcast platform. They're not free to produce and host and disseminate. So if you want to help me do that, kick a few bucks across the internet through the link to our Patreon page in the show notes, and I hope to see you in there. Until our next case, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, Pharaoh child. <laughs>